Hey, I'm in Japan. I'm Frank Ling. And from Chicago, Illinois, I'm Charles Lee. And you're listening to the Grok Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. Coming up on today's program, Mr. Daniel Asa Rose will discuss Larry's kidney. So stay tuned for all of this. Plus the Grokatron 5000. And our world-famous question of the week. Coming right up. Here. On the Grok's Science Show. show. Well, for the over 95,000 patients who are awaiting transplanted organs, the prospects may often seem bleak, even more so considering that 4,000 patients are added to the waiting list each month. One possibility, though, that is happening more and more often is traveling overseas to secure a new organ. Well, joins today to discuss his adventures in this situation is Mr. Daniel Acer Rose. Mr. Rose is an award-winning writer and NEA literary fellow whose previous works include the novel Hiding Places. His new book, Larry's Kidney, being the true story of how I found myself in China with my black sheep cousin and his mail-order bride skirting the law to get him a transplant and save his life, details his travails in the international organ market. Uh, Mr. Rose, thank you very much for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Thanks for having me, Charles. And you got the subtitle in in one breath. It was pretty good. <laughs> well, I think that's certainly one of the uh, longest subtitles in recent memory. Uh, that's what we were shooting for. <laughs> so do people actually still need to read the book after reading the subtitle? <laughs> you know, the subtitle barely scratches the surface. It was such an amazing adventure for me that I had to try and do it justice by including a lot of words in the subtitle, but still... The twists and turns of this adventure were mind-boggling to me, and it took me a year to get it on paper, and people are still just sort of shaking their heads that they can't believe that it all happened the way it happened. Well, it is an amazing adventure, and the subtitle sort of tells the gist of it, but I'm wondering if uh, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your cousin Larry. Well, my cousin Larry is a character. He's like someone, I mean, I, I happen to be a professional writer, and I've overlooked him as a character all my life. I've written lots of books, and my sons have been saying, why don't you ever write about Larry? Why don't you ever, and I said, you know what? He's just too colorful. He's too, he's much too much larger than life. I will never, no one will ever believe anything about Larry. And anyway, we'd been out of touch for about 15 years because we'd had a little feud. So we weren't on speaking terms anyway, so it wasn't even a matter of when am I going to get around to Larry? I'm just, Larry was off the charts for me. But Two summers ago, I was on a chairlift with my family on vacation in Colorado when I got a call on my cell phone from Larry, with whom I hadn't spoken in 15 years. And he was telling me that after apologizing for being out of touch, after apologizing for ratting me out to the FBI last time we spoke for a minor infraction of the mortgage application that he had encouraged me to do, after getting that out of the way, he said he needed a favor from me. And I was a little bit taken aback, but game to hear what his proposal was, and he said he was, in fact, dying and needed a kidney. Well, that got my ear, as you can imagine. So while I tried to sort of quiet the children on the chairlift, he told me, he made me his pitch, which was that he'd been on dialysis for two years. Uh, he was dying of end-stage renal disease, a terribly serious affliction, and he was not going to wait on the waiting list, as his conservative American doctors were telling him to do, for another seven to ten years to get a kidney. He wanted to go abroad to find one in the greater world. Wow. Did you think he was going to ask you for a kidney? You know, he never did. Hmm. 
And throughout the course of the book, it's kind of an unspoken thing. It's like, is Dan, the author, ever going to actually offer him his? It's kind of interesting the way that plays out. But he never actually asked me for mine, and he wasn't about to ask anybody in the family for theirs because there was so much bad blood at this by this point between Larry and the rest of the family. I mean, the subtitle calls him a black sheep. That barely scratches it. Uh, he was somebody who had, by hook or crook, managed to alienate absolutely everybody. He'd alienated me, as I mentioned, but apparently he'd alienated me less than he'd alienated everybody else. So he felt free to call me and ask me to do this thing. He, now, he was suggesting we go to China for a kidney, where he said there, there, until a couple of years ago, there had been more organs available for transplant than in the other nation. But he wanted to be on the, on the up and up with me about everything from the get-go, unlike our previous <clears throat> ventures together and business dealings together. So he wanted to lay all his cards out on the table from the beginning and inform me that there was one little fly in the ointment here, and that was that it was illegal for Westerners to go to China to get a kidney transplant. Thus begins the whole book, the whole adventure. All this takes place in the first five or six pages, and the rest of it is me deciding quite quickly to sort of throw caution to the wind, forgive him his trespasses, let bygones be bygones, and in fact travel with him to China to get an illegal kidney. So that's what we do. Did you sense that there was going to be a, a big story out of this uh, whole adventure? Well, no, I didn't, because I thought, I, first of all, I was in the middle, I, was, I had just started another book that, takes, that couldn't have been more opposite. It, took, it was taking place in New Mexico. It had to do with a car crash in my past. So to be yanked out of that into the chaos of China and the kidney disease and my cousin kidney was kind of a shock to the system. And I initially resisted it. But it was a question of, you know, am I going to let him just die or am I going to try and do what I can? I didn't think it was going to work. I will say that. I mean, I thought the odds were so such a long shot that I thought we'd go over there for a couple of weeks. We would do what we could and we would find that it was an impossible mission. But I would I wanted to try. What, what did the rest of the family think when you told them about this? Well, I got to tell you that I come from a very medical family, and I'm like the only person who's not a doctor practically in this whole extended family. Everybody's a psychiatrist or a surgeon or an eye doctor or a, an internist or a, or something. And they were well. I tell you what, I call them in the book the disapproving docs. <laughs> if that gives you an indication of what their attitude was, they thought it was reckless. They thought it was crazy. They were very wary about all the variables, uh, the unknowns. Where would we get an organ from, even if we could get one? Why would we want to leave the safety uh, of American, the American medical community to go halfway around the world? As one of them put it, it would be laughable if the stakes weren't so high. That was their attitude. And in this, they reflected the basic attitude of the American medical community. They frown upon leaving these shores for an organ, and they can't vouch for what one might find in places like China. But we had no choice, really. Because of the way it's set up in this country, there are so few organs available. There are so many roadblocks in the way of patients getting organs that 17 Americans die every day on waiting lists, waiting for various organs. And all I knew was that, Larry, I didn't want Larry to be one of those 17 that day or the next day. And so we decided to just go for it and see what we could turn up. Wow. How do you even go about starting a search for a, a kidney in China? Well, that's a good
good question, Charles. <laughs> we had no clue. We had no clue whatsoever. It's all a rush-rush in the very beginning because he's, we only have a few days to sort of throw the trip together and go over there because of our schedules. So we didn't really think about how we would do it until we were actually in Beijing. And that's about Chapter 3, and I say, you know, okay, here we are. Now, how does one go about finding a black market kidney? And I kind of joke around about it because the material starts to get ludicrous at this point. I mean, it's, I didn't think it was going to be funny, but it's actually kind of hilarious. We're over there, and how do I contact the black market to get a kidney? You know, do I whistle for it like a puppy? Do I go out soliciting waiters and ask them their connections? Well, I, I kind of did all of the above. And I, I also called every reporter uh, had an English-sounding byline in, in every publication in China. I just started throwing my net wider and wider and wider until I was at the point of giving up after one week because nothing was coming through. Hmm. Were you afraid of people trying to scam you and rob you? And lock it? Yes. Well, yeah. yes. We tried to do a little research from home before we left, but it be quickly became, oh, what's that expression, like a hornet's nest or a, a nest of unsavory characters. We were in touch with somebody from Guam who wanted $10,000 just to start making contacts for us, and some other person in Hawaii who said, oh, he knew how to do it, just give him a deposit and he'd make it, he'd smooth the way for us. It looked pretty bad. And when I got back to Larry about that, he said, listen, Dan, we both suck at planning, and we both are savvy enough to know that most of the deals in the world go down not because of advanced planning, but because you happen to be there when the deal goes down. So let's just go over there and try our luck. Hmm. And that's, in fact, what we did. And you eventually uh, found Dr. X, who wound up helping you. We found a Dr. X. Well, the night before we were to live, we, we decided, well, we'd give ourselves one week in Beijing. If nothing turned up, and we went to some ridiculous lengths to, to try and find one in Beijing, which are recounted in the book, we decided after one week we would try the Philippines, where it was not illegal yet. And actually, in the course of the next month, it did become illegal in Philippines punishable by a hefty fine and a lengthy prison stay, or we would go to Singapore or go to Singapore or go to Hong Kong. We didn't know. We knew that we would give it one week in China and then split for further points unknown. But the night before we were to leave China, I got an email from a friend of a friend who said he had been away all week. He wanted to meet with me. Would I meet him at a Jewish synagogue in Beijing? And I said, a Jewish synagogue in Beijing? Sure enough, that's where we met the next night, and as I was looking around, making friends among all these expat Jewish folks in Beijing, businessmen from London and reporters from Washington, D.C., and all these other well-connected folks, I started thinking, hmm, maybe I could make a plea here and now and just throw myself on the mercy of this congregation and see what turns up. And that's where we had our breakthrough. Um, People were kind of shocked when I, when I did get up and just sort of make my announcement. I kind of shocked myself that I did it. I thought it was probably rude and obnoxious, and I was uh, violating their hospitality to sort of come in and make such a request without being invited. But they took it in the right spirit. And after a moment's shocked silence, the service broke up and people started drifting over to me and I apologized and said, you know, sorry if I overstepped my boundaries, but this is a matter of life and death and I can't afford to dilly-dally. And they said, no, no, we understand. And in fact, have you tried so-and-so? And suddenly these leads started coming in and I tracked down the leads and just before we were to give up on China, I got a connection to a mystery surgeon, Dr. X, I call him, in a far-off 
rank city in China, far off the beaten path, where no Western tourists go, uh, there was a doctor who was rumored to still have access to some healthy kidneys if we were to go out there and meet with him. So that's what we did. The thing about that city was that it actually had reasonable medical facilities. Well, speaking for myself, I was so naive about China. Uh, looking at it from here, before I left, I thought, what's it going to be like? There's probably only a couple of cities that have decent hospitals. How wrong I was. I mean, that, that land is so much more advanced scientifically than we are in many, many ways. There are lots and lots of hospitals that do lots and lots of organ transplants. And in fact, they're more practiced in the procedure than we are. This particular doctor in this particular hospital had done something like 150 kidney transplants the year before. I think the leading, uh, I may be wrong, but I think the leading surgeons in this country do a total of about 30 a year because of the limited availability of organs. So these guys are actually more practiced in the procedure than we are. And the organs are screened with greater care, if possible, than they are here. And it's just a lot further along, the whole science and application of the transplant procedure. So we did get to this hospital, and it was kind of a cross between Stone Age and Space Age. For instance, in our hospital suite, there was a bidet in the bathroom that had remote control sanitary features on one end of the bathroom. On the other end of the bathroom, there was a shower with no shower curtain and only loose rocks to keep the water in. So we got the feeling we're in this kind of no man's land between the past and the future, and we were just hoping that they knew what they were doing. And we quickly got the feeling and the assurance that they, in fact, did know what they were doing. They may not have had all the comforts of Western hospitals, like shower curtains or food. They didn't supply food or of any kind for the patients. We had to go out and hustle for food and plates and blankets and all that and bring them back and really set up housekeeping in the hospital. But as far as the surgery itself and the medical conditions, they were A1. They were fantastic. What was sort of the most fascinating or unusual encounter in this whole process? You know, the thing that stunned me the most, I think, was how wonderful the Chinese people were towards us. I mean, here we were, complete strangers, throwing themselves on their mercy. They didn't know us from a hole in the wall. They knew it was illegal, but they stuck their necks out to help us. I mean, everybody went out of their way to help us, and it wasn't because of money. We didn't have much. Larry is not a rich man. He didn't ask me to help finance his trip. I'm not a rich guy either, nor did he ask to subsidize my trip. I went on my own dime. But there we were, two middle-aged, middle-class Americans, Joe Blows over there looking around for a kidney, and these people opened their doors to us, they opened their facilities, and they opened their hearts, and they took us under their wing. I was absolutely stunned by this. Everybody, from the, the tailor across the street from the hospital who repaired my hat, and wouldn't take money for it to the, the surgeon himself, who would not give us a price the entire time. His whole stress the entire two months we were there was to get the paperwork done and to make sure all the T's were crossed and the I's were dotted. And he didn't mention the price the entire time, but when the price came down, it was a fraction of what the American cost would have been. He gave us the same price that it would have been for a Chinese native. So money was not their motive either. It was really altruism on everyone's part. And that, I think, was the most stunning thing for us. I hadn't been to China in 25 years. I went there in the early 80s uh, when it was a very different land. And I found it back then a very harsh place with a lot of difficult people who were not well disposed to be 
friendly to a Westerner. It couldn't have been more different 25 years later. They were sympathetic, kind, compassionate, and all-giving. Mm. Certainly restores your faith in uh, human kindness, right? Oh, it really did. It really did. I, I, well, when the plane lifted off the ground two months after I got there, I just wept in my seat. I was so moved by what I saw of the humanity. Not only the Chinese people, the people in that congregation who had put themselves out on the neck to, to help us make the connections that we needed to make. Turns out when I got back to Beijing after two months, I looked them up again, and they, were, they had been saying a prayer every Friday night for Larry, oh, wow. um, just based on the few minutes that they knew me in that service when I was about to leave China with my hopes unfulfilled. They just took me to their heart and took Larry to their heart, and yeah, it did restore my faith in humanity. Um, now, Larry himself is a different story. <laughs> he, he, he may not have restored my faith in humanity because he's such a character. <laughs> well, I, I understand that a kidney was not the only thing that Larry obtained from China. Well, yes, Larry is a shrewd businessman. He's, uh, by trade, he's a, an inventor of what I call get-poor-quick schemes. <laughs> in fact, the reason we'd had our falling out 15 years earlier and the reason he had ratted me out to the FBI was because I had asked for a loan back the loan was to subsidize his latest invention, which was ta-da, wooden neckties, <laughs> which he still maintains would have been a huge hit if only he'd have the proper financing. After all, you can sponge the gravy stains off a wooden necktie. It's a lot more practical than a, a wool necktie. Uh, well, it, it was one of a thousand inventions that Larry was peddling throughout his whole life. And for, for better or for worse, that was what he did. Uh, so how's Larry doing now? Well, the kidney's great. He's back in Florida in his condo. He's been a couch potato all his life, as I describe him, a gun-toting couch potato. So he's not taking care of himself over the course of his life, which was why he was not high on the list of people to get transplants. So the rest of him is kind of falling down around him. But the kidney's going great guns, and he hasn't rejected it. He's taking his anti-rejection meds. He's off dialysis, which means he has his life back. Because if you've ever known anybody who's had dialysis, you'll know it's not much of a life. Mm. I got to see what it was like up close, and my goodness, my heart goes out to anybody who's in dialysis. It's a, it's a radical procedure in which they take out all your blood and clean it and put it back in, and, and it comes back in, and, and at least in Larry's case, it totally scrambled his, his thought processes and wiped him out so severely that... It was typically followed by 12 hours of adult sleep and, and kind of a disorientation as to where he was. And that's what had to take place every two or three days for four hours. Mm. So it was no existence at all, it just dismal. And it was when I saw him doing that in China that I realized that whatever reservations I'd had about going over there and helping him and performing a deed that wasn't perfectly legal over there and was of questionable ethics, which I was aware of from the start, all these concerns just paled in the face of seeing how Larry was suffering on the, having the life that he had pre-transplant. Hmm. After going through all of this, uh, would you recommend the journey for others looking for an organ? Well, not specifically to China. We were very fortunate. I wouldn't recommend anybody go to a country blind the way we did. We had no choice, really. We had a, a small window of opportunity when we both had, our schedules would allow. He was desperate. So we were of necessity forced to go fast and act fast and recklessly. Um, for anyone else, I would say look at your options. Get a larger picture. Get on the Internet. Look what's happening in other countries. In some countries, it, it is legal. And explore what you can. Look at 
the wider options that you have. Even in the United States, there are doctors who, who will tell you about other options. Don't be stuck in a chair for year after year waiting for an organ to fall into your lap because that's a kind of a, an endless torture and there's no guarantee that you're going to get one. There are organs available around the world if you look beyond our borders. I would also strongly urge everybody to start agitating for reform of these laws. I think organ transplants should be made commercially available. I think we should be allowed to buy organs in this country. And I think that we should change the, the default so that the default would be that it's, we automatically give our organs to an organ bank upon death unless we specifically opt out. Some countries have experimented with that, like Spain, and it's working very successfully. A small change like that would open up the floodgates for organs and stop the needless suffering of thousands and thousands of patients in America and abroad who are waiting in vain for organs that never come. Indeed, indeed. Uh, well, we are running slightly out of time. I'm just wondering if you have some final words on Larry's kidney. Well, it's, a, it's an uplifting read, believe it or not. I was worried that it would be a downer, that it would be just talking about the disease and how depressed Larry was. It actually turned out to be a very uplifting story and hilarious. I, I couldn't believe it. It's a comedy. It, it's a comedy that we go abroad, uh, we meet these crazy people who take us on zany adventures, and all in the spirit of getting Larry well and getting him a good kidney. So uh, it's an enjoyable book. It's a fast read, and I hope everybody reads it and learns more about this business of organ transplant and then goes out and decides to, to donate themselves. Well, it certainly is a very fascinating book. Uh, the new book is Larry's Kidney. Uh, I won't attempt the subtitle again, but uh, and I certainly hope everyone will go take a look at that. Uh, Mr. Rose, I want to thank you very much for joining us today. Charles, this was a real pleasure. And you were just listening to Mr. Daniel Asa Rose discussing Larry's Kidney. This is the Grok's Science Show. Well, coming up in just a few minutes, it's the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. Time for the Grokatron 5000, which is our supercomputer formerly known as Deep Blue. Today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, transplant them or not. So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know if they need to be transplanted or not and a little reason why. Mr. Rose, you ready to play the game? I am ready to play this game. All right, here we go. Grokatron 5000, person number one, transplant them or not, Jerry Springer. Jerry Springer, don't go near him with a transplant. Let him die an organic death. Probably a good thing for society. <laughs> Uh, number two is the American Idol judge, Simon Cowell. Oh, Simon Cowell. Yes, I love Simon Cowell. He's worthy of being 
transplant it, take any organ from him and put it in other people, or get him one when the time comes. I think, as unpopular as he is, he, he, he sticks to his views, he's got the gumption of his own opinions, and I really like the way he's raising the bar in America. Okay. Uh, number three is uh, real estate mogul Donald Trump. Oh, goodness. If I, I should have reserved the uh, organic death for him instead of, <laughs> instead of Jerry Springer. Let him go, too. I will withhold my organs. A hair transplant? <laughs> the Donald. Yeah, the, the hair. What, I don't get that. I mean, with all his billions, how come he hasn't gotten a successful hair transplant? I don't, I don't get it. It's beyond medical science, I think. Maybe. Uh, okay, number four is the, uh, the heiress Paris Hilton. Oh, Paris. You know what? I think Paris is going to grow up and probably turn out to be a worthy human being in, you know, 50 or 60 years. I think she may grow a brain at some point. And if someone wants to, you know, hasten the procedure by donating a brain, let's do it. <laughs> we may be waiting a long time, I think. But... Maybe, maybe. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so finally, number okay. five, it's uh, Bernie Madoff. Oh, dear. You've really mixed them up, haven't you? <laughs> you know, I'm not even going to venture opinion about him. There are so many people who are directing vitriolic thoughts towards Bernie that let's let them take care of him. <laughs> he did a terrible thing. He continues to do a terrible thing. I don't think he think he's aware of the, the breadth of his sins. Uh, it's just a shame. It's a shame for everybody concerned. And he could have, with, with that money that he squandered and lost for people, he could have funded so many organ transplants. He could have reduced the suffering of so many thousands of people. It's just a, a shame. But we should leave on, a, on an up note because this is a funny book. And if you keep your sense of humor, I would also advise patients to keep their sense of humor and see beyond their own situation and to the silver linings that are around there because happy endings can be had. Uh, certainly have for Larry, as yep. uh, is detailed in the new book, Larry's Kidney. Uh, Mr. Rose, I want to thank you very much again for joining us today on the Grok Science Show. Pleasure, Charles. Thanks so much. And that's all for this week's edition of the Grok Science Show. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here, you can email us at science at groks.net. For Grok Science, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.groks.net. Have a great afternoon and keep on grokking.